sweet. Glad you guys are here tonight. Um, we are after after a week of kind of doing some big picture gospel stuff up front, and then after a week of watching OSU play, we get to actually jump into 2 Corinthians tonight, uh, sort of. Um, we're going to make our way about two verses in, and, and then we, we've got some work cut out for us to make sure that we understand the background to this book and why it gets written and how it gets written. And uh, so that's what we'll be doing tonight is, is talking through kind of what leads up to this book and then some of the major themes that we're going to see play out as we study through the, the letter that Paul writes to this church um, throughout this whole year as we walk through that. So before we do that, uh, let me pray for us and then we'll get started. Dear Father, we thank you for your word, and uh, I, th I thank you for your church, and uh, I thank you as I think about the way that you're using your church to serve in Houston right now, and I thank you um, when I think that for 2,000 years you've been using broken people and a church that is not, um, that is not perfect by any means, but that is made spotless by the blood of Jesus. And uh, what better place to, to see that than in this, this messed up church in Corinth. I pray that as we examine this, that you would help us to see ourselves in this text, but more importantly, that you would help us to see Jesus and that you would give us a bigger love for him and uh, a greater desire to serve and follow him through this year. I ask your Holy Spirit to do that in us. In the name of Jesus, amen. All right, if you got your Bibles, you can open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. It goes like this. The first couple of verses, this is the greeting, standard greeting, very similar at least to most classical Greek letters written in the first century. Um, starts with kind of, I so-and-so to you so-and-so. And uh, here's how it goes. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, uh, this is what we're going to be examining. The relationship between Paul... Who, who writes this letter, along with Timothy, but it's Paul who's writing. He's just saying, Timothy's with me in this. Um, to you, the saints in Corinth, um, and he says, in the surrounding regions of Achaia, this kind of region here, all the little believers that were in that area. That saints is an interesting word to use uh, for the church that he's about to be talking to. Paul uses the word saints differently than we use the word saints, by the way. Um, he uses it biblically. And, and we tend to use saints to talk about like um, really spiritual people or people who are old and dead in the past. Paul says a saint, which literally the word translated is hagias, holy one, is anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus. And so he will say to these flawed and messed up people, some of them who are turning on him in this moment, he will call them saints, 
holy ones, set apart by Jesus, made holy um, through what Jesus has done. It's an interesting term for him. As I said, we're going to spend all year walking through this book. Last year we were in a few different books because we did some shorter ones, but we're walking front to back through 2 Corinthians with maybe a couple breaks in it for this year. I, I have liked this book and I have wanted to study it here at the table for some time. We did, I think four years ago, we did 1 Corinthians, and so now we're, we're finally getting to the long-awaited sequel. And, and I, I, I've always, in, like I said, I've enjoyed there's something about, there's certain passages in 2 Corinthians that have kind of grabbed me over the last several years, and so I've been excited to want to do this, and, and, and finally this seemed to be kind of a good year for it. We decided, alright, this is what we're doing. At the beginning of the summer, we said, alright, we're doing 2 Corinthians, and so it was my job to, to start reading through it and, and decide to figure out how we're going to break up the text, so how we're going to teach it each week. And then I opened it up, and I started doing that, and I struggled I had a really hard time making my way through trying to figure out the movements that Paul is making in his arguments and, and where arguments stop and where a new one begins and where one picks back up. It can be, uh, it can be a little tough. And then last week I started reading this uh, commentary in preparation for this and I came across this line. Um, this one commentator says, The letter we call 2 Corinthians is widely recognized as the most difficult to understand among Paul's letters. So there's that. Um, widely recognized as the most difficult to understand amongst Paul's letters. Why? Well, it's not actually because of the content necessarily. There's some depth to the content, but, but content-wise, uh, it probably does not compare with Romans and the amount of discussion and debate that goes on as to what Paul is talking about in certain passages, Romans 9, Romans 11, and some big, some big texts like that. It's not so much the content. It's the layout of this, of this letter. As I said, uh, reading through it and trying to figure out where the flow of Paul's argument is going and, and, and where he picks up and where he drops off, that's what gets kind of difficult as you read through this. And the reason for that is because of the complicated relationship that Paul has with this church, which we're going to get to here in just a minute. Um, in order to understand this, we've got to go back a little bit and, and start at the beginning for Corinth, how Paul's relationship with this church developed and where it came from. So let me move back actually just a little bit before that. Um, just, I, I don't want to assume that we all know exactly who Paul is or what he's about or those things. So let's start with him. Early first century, actually growing up right around the exact same time as Jesus, probably a few years younger than Jesus, there is this guy by the name of Saul. Saul grows up in two towns during the first century. The first is Tarsus in Asia Minor, about here. And that's where the name Saul of Tarsus comes from. But when he comes to about middle school area, high school, there's not a middle school back then, but you know what I mean. That age, when he goes to like young adults, teenage, he moves down to Jerusalem. And it's at this point that Saul begins to study under one of the most famous rabbis in the first century, a man by the name of Gamaliel. That alone tells you something about who Saul is. Because studying under a rabbi was not like enrolling in a university where it's like if you get you know, at least a decent ACT score and you've got enough money to pay, you can come here. Or even if you don't have enough money, we'll just let you pay student loans and then pay that back till you're 90. Okay? Um, that's, that's not how it was back then, right? Um, back then, 
to even be able to stutter, uh, study under a, that's, that's a weird word to mix up. To stutter, okay, um, to, be able to study under a rabbi, you had to already be like head and shoulders above most of your peers. More like more well qualified, more well versed in the scriptures than the average person in order to be able to study in a rabbi. To be able to study, geez, goodness, to study under a rabbi like Gamaliel, like you've got to be cream of the crop. And Saul shows himself to be that. He is a fast rising star amongst this conservative group of the Jews known as the Pharisees. And one of the ways you become a fast rising star is not just by your knowledge and by your ability to be able to understand or explain the scriptures, but also by your passion and your zeal. And Saul demonstrates this like crazy. So much so that when this new sect of Judaism, when this new group begins to not necessarily break, well, it depends on your perspective. According to Saul, they were breaking off. This group wouldn't have said they were, but according to Saul, they were breaking off because they, they started claiming that the Messiah had already come. This man by the name of Jesus of Nazareth. They claimed that he was the promised Messiah that they had been waiting for, and that even though he had been crucified by the Romans and by the Jewish leaders, that he had risen from the grave, and now not only were they calling him Messiah, but they were beginning to worship this man and to follow him. And when Saul sees this, he cares so much about the purity of Judaism that he decides he will do anything he can to stop it. And, and he begins to persecute, to attack, to hunt down Christians wherever he can. Luke describes him this way in Acts 9, says that Paul breathed out murder and threats towards the church. Breathing out murder. That's, that's how angry he was. That's how violent he was towards these people. Wanting to do anything in his mind to protect the purity of the religion of Judaism. And so Saul begins to do these things, and he begins to hunt them down wherever he goes. He finds out that there's a church that has started up in Damascus, up in the area of Syria. And so he gets um, letters from the priest basically giving him permission to go up there and arrest and throw in jail anyone who he finds who's a believer up there. On the way up there, this is probably, we don't know exactly, probably 34, 35 A.D., um, just a few years after Jesus uh, Jesus' ministry and, and death and his resurrection. 34-35 AD, Saul begins to make his way up to Damascus, and on this road, he is confronted by the risen Christ. And Jesus confronts him in a vision, knocking him down and striking him blind with a bright light, asking, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who, who are you? He says, I'm Jesus whom you persecute. Very fascinating. Jesus, Paul's not doing anything to Jesus. Jesus is gone. Jesus is now with the Father, but Jesus so associates himself with his church that he says, when you persecute the believers, you persecute me. Paul is con Saul is converted in that moment. And uh, he, begins, he begins a new life up in Damascus that actually takes him a while before his ministry really gets underway. But sometime later, he is up in Antioch and he gets this call along with a guy named Barnabas to go out into um, the rest of the Roman Empire and to begin to share the gospel, to be able to share about Jesus. He starts in his first missionary journey, and they travel over to Cyprus, which is where Barnabas is from, and then they go up into this region of Galatia, and they share the gospel up here before making their way back to Antioch. A.D. 49, by this time, Saul has changed his name to Paul. In A.D. 49, they set out on their second missionary journey. 
And they come up through here this, to visit all the churches that they had started and planted up in this region of Galatia. And then they try to get into these different parts of Asia. Up here, this is Cappadocia, and I believe this is Bithynia up here. They try to get up into this area. But Acts tells us, Acts 16, that every time they try to go, the Holy Spirit or Jesus or God himself stops them and doesn't let them go any further. They keep running into these barriers. And so they kind of bounce around until they end up in this city called Troas. And there in Troas, Paul goes to sleep one night, and he has this vision of a Macedonian man, a man from Europe, saying, please, come tell us about Jesus. And, and Paul wakes up and he goes, I know why we weren't allowed to get up there. The Holy Spirit had other plans for us. And, and so they go over. This is the first time that the gospel reaches into the Western world, at least, um, at least systematically, that churches begin to start getting planted here. And so Paul travels over into Philippi um, after landing at Neapolis, and then he goes into Thessalonica, which is where we were focused last year, um, his ministry there with the Thessalonians, down into Berea, and then in Athens, and then um, around around the end of A.D. 49, or probably actually A.D. 50, spring of A.D. 50, Paul arrives in Corinth. And when Paul gets to Corinth, um, he, would have, he would have found himself uh, just seeing one of the most amazing cities in the Roman Empire there. So um, impressive and so amazing. It was considered probably the third most important, third most prestigious city in the Roman Empire, behind Rome and the city of Alexandria in Egypt. Um, he arrives there and... Um, begins working here with the Gentiles, he finds this couple there named Aquila and Priscilla. And they are tent makers. They are Jews, but they're fr and they're originally from Rome. But there's this decree that got put out just earlier. A.D. 49, the Emperor Claudius expelled every Jew from Rome. This is the boot of Italy, so somewhere here. Um, every Jew gets kicked out of Rome. We don't know exactly why. Something about some fighting that takes place... We some people wonder if it has to do with Christianity starting to spread amongst the Jewish people there in Rome. But Claudius kicks all the Jews out, and so Aquila and Priscilla end up here in Corinth, along with a number of other Jewish people in Corinth. Paul finds them, he ends up staying with them, and he begins a ministry in there. Um, and yeah, he begins to preach and teach there. Now his practice is always... Always, like every city he goes to, he starts with the synagogue. He goes first to the Jews and wants to share the gospel with them. Uh, remember, he is well-versed in the Jewish scriptures. He is comfortable in the synagogue. He knows how to do this thing. So he starts with the Jews, and he's working there for several weeks, but they reject him. Not all of them. In fact, the synagogue ruler, a guy by the name of Crispus, ends up coming to the Lord along with his whole family, along with his whole household. But eventually the Jewish people reject him. They want nothing to do with him and they get, begin to oppose him. And so he says, fine, I'll take my message to the Gentiles. And he begins to preach and teach to the Gentiles there in Corinth. Um, he has a pretty incredible um, ministry that I say pretty incredible. He's there for about 18 months, and, and Luke tells us in Acts 16 that many Corinthians began to believe at this time. 
Um, we also know that it's at this time that the Jews begin to mount an opposition to him, this united front, and they decide we're going to bring this man down, we're going to end what he's doing here, and they bring him before the consul, uh, the, the proconsul there, a guy by the name of Galileo. This is, by the way, if you're wondering, how in the world do we know the dates for this? How do we know that Paul left in AD 49? How do we know that he gets there in AD 50, 51? The reason we know is because of that name right there, Galileo. Acts 16 tells us that when the Jews decided to try and get him in trouble, they bring him before the proconsul Galileo and say to him, this man is stirring up trouble. Now we have inscriptions from archaeological digs there in Corinth that tells us the exact time when Galileo was proconsul in Corinth. And it was only these years, 51 to 52. Uh, the beginning of July in 51 to the end of June in 52. And so we know that's the exact time Paul is there. He's there in that time, and he's there for a span of 18 months. Galileo refuses to hear it and says, hey, this is your own issue. This is an issue of your own religion. What, what the Jews are hoping to do is, is say that Paul is causing problems and causing trouble, and so you need to deal with this before it causes some kind of riot or gets us in trouble with Rome. But Galileo has nothing to do with it. And, and he says, no, this is, this is something for you to figure out yourself. And he just kind of sends them away. Paul, as I said, is there 18 months, and then, and then Luke says, and he stayed there um, for a while longer, so maybe a little bit beyond that. In AD 51, he leaves this church and makes his way over to Ephesus. He will be in Ephesus for about two and a half years. When he leaves Corinth, everything seems to be going well. It's been a fruitful ministry. People have come to the Lord, not just in Corinth, but in the surrounding region of Achaia. But things will begin to turn after this. Now, let me step back for just a second and explain to you a little bit about this town and what makes it so significant. The city of Corinth, as I said, was the third most important in the empire behind Rome and Alexandria. Um, Strabo, this Greek historian writing in the first century, uh, attributes its prominence to being, he calls it, the master of two harbors. That's what made Corinth so um, prominent, so prestigious, so amazing. You had um, this one uh, man-made port here called, I want to make sure I get it right here, a uh, man-made port called the Caeum, right there at this little edge. It's only like a mile away from Corinth. And then if you travel down into this little, I don't know, armpit or whatever you want to say there, um, is one called Centria. Both of these harbors on either side of this little isthmus that connects, Achaia, uh, connects this region with the rest of Greece and Achaia. And this became really, really key because people sailing from Italy, when Rome wanted to get goods distributed across the empire or bring them in, or if people from Asia Minor wanted to begin to sell over into Europe, um, you could cut six days off your journey and avoid one of the more treacherous areas of the Mediterranean Sea by dropping your goods off here and then transporting them across this, this little isthmus here. At, at its thinnest area, it was about three to four miles, and actually there's records showing that they had, they had actually built a road across this thing that was able to actually put ships up on and carry the ships across the road and then drop them down in the water. Um, now, it doesn't seem, it, people used to talk about this all the time, like this is this huge deal in Corinth. We don't know if, it's, if it was used all that often. We know in times of war, when they needed to get battleships over to places quick, they used it. They would actually stick them up on, I don't know how they did it, wheels or something like that, and they would roll these boats along the road and then drop them in the other side. But if nothing else, you could drop your cargo off here and then move it over to the next harbor and take it beyond that. Because of this... The whole world, if they want to trade back and forth, they got to come through Corinth. 
It's a crossroads of East meets West. And it's a, it's, a, it's a place that is multi-cultured. It's a place um, where uh, it becomes a major distribution center. And it's a place um, with a large population, probably around 80,000 people in the city of Corinth. That's huge for that time, with 20,000 people in the surrounding region. So 100,000 people in the metropolis of Corinth there. And because you have so many different people there, and because you have so many different things coming in and out of there, there's a lot of money. And it also becomes a very multicultural place. There are a lot of pagans with a lot of different pagan religions gathering in this place and a lot of different belief structures that happens on this. It also becomes a very wealthy town. But, but here's the thing about Corinth. This Corinth actually is Corinth part two. There was actually an original one that was established all the way back in like 600, like the 7th century BC. So the same time that Jeremiah is prophesying to the people in Israel about coming destruction from Babylon, Corinth is on its way up. And it becomes a big and prominent city until it gets on the wrong side of Rome and gets destroyed in 146 BC. Then it sits dormant with nobody there for 100 years. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar reestablishes it again. He recognizes the importance of this area. He reestablishes it, and like that, it just explodes. But because it's brand new, it's only been around by the time Paul's there, it's only been around 80, 90 years, um, there is no old money in this town. It's only new money. There is no, like so many other places in the empire, there is no established aristocracy. There's not people who are high up just because of their family name, because of who they were born to, because of what they do. The only way you get to the top in Corinth is just like everybody else, by making your way up the ladder. The way you get to the top, it's an aristocracy of wealth. The rich people are the important people. And, and this is a place where when Rome establishes it as a colony, they put veteran, like military veterans, guys who retired from the military, they put them there. They put freedmen, which are people who, who have just bought their way out of slavery, they put them there. They put like your blue-collar workers and merchants there. And so it's a place where every person gets to start over, gets a new chance, and they begin to build their way up. And for that reason, this idea of status and climbing the ladder became a really, really big deal in Corinth. Scott Haifman, he's a commentator on, on the book of 2 Corinthians, describes Corinth as a freewheeling boomtown filled with the materialism, pride, and self-confidence that come from having made it in a new place with a new social identity. It's this place where you, anybody can get their way to the top and pride and self-confidence and all kinds of materialism come with that. And it was well known for its many patrons. That is, people who were rich and who would give money or give deals or give food or protection to people in um, uh, kind of as long as those people would respond with loyalty to them come election time or come something else. So there were these patrons, they were in charge, they gave money, they had influence and control and other people would kind of fall under their patronage. Now, Paul leaves Corinth, as I said, at, at around 51 AD, comes over to Ephesus and things are going well at that time. But, around, uh, but shortly after that, things begin to turn and Corinth begins to, the church there begins to take a downward slide. Um, there's this one commentator who says it like this, many of the faults of the Corinthian church can be traced to their uncritical acceptance of the attitudes, values, and behaviors of the, of the society in which they lived. 
many of the things that begin to trip up this church are a result of them just accepting and kind of adapting to the culture that they were living in at that time. I think you could probably actually substitute the word Corinthian church with American church and say that same sentence perfectly. Um, and this is one of the major problems that happens in Corinth, that the status game and pride and the draw towards things that are flashy and impressive and the hyper-sexualized culture all tempt this church. All of those things are constantly pressing in on this young church. And the, the issue for the Corinthian church is not, we think we might reject Jesus and walk away from it. The issue is, I want to have Jesus and I want to live like the world around me. I want to follow him, and I still want to do the things that my neighbor's doing. And I still want to have my old way of life. And that becomes the problem that begins to trip up this church. Around 6 to 12 months after Paul has moved to Ephesus, he receives word um, from some people there in the church of a couple things that are going on. Specific, the first and main thing is that sexual immorality is starting to grip the church. And so he writes this letter to the Corinthians telling them not to associate with such people. Now, this gets interesting. Okay, we have how many letters to the Corinthians? Okay, we have two letters to the Corinthians. There were how many written? Four letters to the Corinthians. The, the letter Paul just wrote, they actually break them up into um, Corinthians... I can spell this. Corinthians A, B, C, and D. The first letter Paul writes is known as Corinthians A, and we do not have this letter. All we know is Paul references it in 1 Corinthians 5. And he says, in my previous letter, I told you to stop associating with people who live in sexual immorality. He says, I'm not talking about the world around you. You would have to just like, just completely run away from the city of Corinth or, or whatever to be able to, to not associate with those kinds of people. I'm talking about people who are calling themselves Christians and living in a sexual sinful life have nothing to do with them, he says to them. And so he sends this letter to them in what we call Corinthians A. Fast forward another 6 to 12 months, and the news he gets is worse. The sexual sin has not subsided. It has only gotten worse. In fact, there is one member in the church who is actually sleeping with his stepmom in, in the church at this time. One of the leaders, it seems, is sleeping with his stepmom and is not trying to hide it, is proud of it, is proud of his freedom to be able to do those things. Um, some of the believers are taking one another to court in the church and suing one another. Um, there is an elitism, elitism that is based in the wealth and even in spiritual gifts. So that patronage society that says some people are at the top and I've got status is starting to play itself out in church. And, and they're separating themselves amongst their class. It's also separating themselves amongst their spiritual gifts. And there are some people with certain spiritual gifts who consider themselves better, more spiritual, more religious than the others. And all of this is beginning to um, ooze its way into the church. And not only that, but factions are starting to form in the church. Um, some people are saying, yeah, Paul's great, but, but I actually I follow this other guy named Apollos. Or I can't follow this guy named Peter. I follow... And it seems like this was probably, it appears that this was probably started by some false teachers that began to get their way into the church that came into Corinth after Paul had left. Now, we don't know much about these teachers. Here are the few things that we know. We know um, that they have their roots in Jewish heritage, that they are trumpeting the fact that they are of Jewish heritage and their connection to Moses and the law. They are trying to trumpet that as a means of showing their superior knowledge and spirituality. Here's why you should listen to us. 
Here's why we have all the answers, because we're connected to the roots of this whole thing with our Jewish heritage. Um, It appears that they are big on fancy rhetoric and low on content, um, which is not surprising in Corinth. Around this time in the Greco-Roman Empire, there's this thing known as the Sophist movements. And, and uh, comes from the word Sophia, wisdom in the Greek. And the Sophists were this group of people who were known for being very articulate, for being um, very smooth talking, for being silver-tongued, if you will. And they, they had this amazing ability to speak about, well, it didn't matter about what they were speaking. All that matters is that it sounded really good when they said it. And these sophists would come into town, these itinerant teachers, and they would come in there, they would begin to teach, and they would gather followers around them who had come to them, and then they would start to expect all of those followers to start to pay them for their services, the ability to come hear me talk. And, and so they would start to gather up this group, and they would make their money doing that. And you would think that people would go, man, that's crazy, that's ridiculous, who would do that? The Corinthians were enamored with people like this. It was so impressive when someone could come and they know how to turn a phrase. And they know how to sound amazing. And so when someone comes in and they're able to teach and talk like that, they draw people in. And the Corinthian church bought in hook, line, and sinker to whatever the people were saying. It didn't matter that much as long as it sounded amazing. But they were saying some stuff that sounded nice as well. They, they were preaching what we call now, and here's your big fancy term for the day, an over-realized eschatology. And I'm going to say that one time. An over-realized eschatology. So the word eschatology means like study of the end times, things that come, or the last things, all right? And over-realized means, when we say an over-realized eschatology, it means that they were claiming that all the blessings that are going to come to us at the end, like when we're in heaven, we no longer get sick, and nobody, nobody is left in poverty and in want, and when perfect joy and when we're, where we're truly spiritually mature, that all of those things that are going to happen, these people are coming in and preaching, you should already be experiencing that. You should be realizing that now. You should be feeling that like me. I'm experiencing that is what they would say. And, and you shouldn't have to suffer now. And you should be wealthy now. And you should be um, experiencing a greater level of spirituality and this really awesome experiences with God. And they were preaching and teaching all these things and the people loved to hear it. This would have fit well with the culture of that day because religion in Corinth, there was a lot of it. But it was not a religion that cared about doctrine and it was not a religion that cared about like character transformation or formation of any kind. The point of religion in Corinth and in most of the Greco-Roman world at this time, the point of religion is to improve the well-being of its adherents. That if I do the right rituals, if I pray the right prayers, if I offer the right incense, the gods are going to make my life go better. And so when these guys show up and say, hey, if you really follow Jesus, your life is going to go better. That just makes sense. That just fits. It just works with them. And so, so many of the people, or a number of the people in the Corinthian church, especially some of those higher up and more powerful, begin to buy into that. And these people begin to call into question Paul's ministry, the false teachers. Here's why. Because Paul is not fancy when he talks. Because Paul doesn't charge the Corinthian church for his preaching and teaching to them. He takes special pains to never ask for money for them, for himself. And people, again... That sounds nice to us, but then back then they go, how good can the little guy be if he's free? Like how, how, how genuine, how, how incredible, how valid is the stuff that he says if it's for free? And if he's not charging anything, then what's the catch? 
What's the hook? What's his secret motive that he's trying to get at here if he's not actually charging you money? And then lastly, Paul suffers a lot. And if being a good and spiritual person means you're never supposed to suffer, then Paul does not look like a good and spiritual person. And this is one of the main accusations that gets lobbed at Paul by the false teachers and that many, that a number of people in the church begin to buy into. Yeah, if, if Paul is so loved by God, if he has Jesus so figured out, then how come every time he shows up he's got bumps and bruises all over the place? How come he's been in those shipwrecks? How, how would God allow him to go through all those beatings? How do we know if this guy really even knows what he's talking about? And so they begin to question those things. And, and not everybody. It gets complicated. This is what I say. It's complicated to say the church in Corinth did this. Or the church in Corinth didn't do this. Because the church is actually made up a number of house churches. Some in Corinth, some in the surrounding regions. And so there's not a universal thing. There are Some of the ch- house churches begin to turn on Paul. Not all, but some of them begin to. And so Paul sends another letter. Corinthians B which we do have and know as 1 Corinthians. He sends 1 Corinthians to these people, and right on its heels, he sends Corinthians, we think, by boat, and then he sends Timothy around the horn here um, and travels down to Corinth so that Timothy will get there right after the letter gets there to help them live out some of the instruction that he gives them in the letter. But when Timothy shows up, he finds the church in its worst state yet. The false teachers seem to be gaining influence and some in the church are starting to turn on Paul. And as soon as the shipping opened up in the spring, see, you couldn't actually travel across the waters in the wintertime, most of the time. Every now and then some people would try it. But you don't want to do that because that's, that's the storm season. That's when the storms come up. And not only that, because it's cloudy so often and because their primary form of navigation is the sky the stars and the sun and the moon, that if it's cloudy all the time, you can't find your way through the sea. And so here Timothy is, he shows up and things are awful, but he can't get word back yet. Um, It's difficult to travel. And as soon as as the shipping season opens up in spring, probably, uh, I think we have 54. Um, Paul, yeah, 54. Timothy heads back to Ephesus. By the way, when I say 54, that's a guesstimate. Could be 55, something like that. Paul, or Timothy heads back to Ephesus and gives him the news. Things in Corinth are falling apart. Something needs to be done. So Paul rushes back to Corinth, and we know very little about this trip, except for Paul calls it the painful visit. It appears to be one of the darker periods in his life as he goes back to this church, this people that he loved, this church that he started and brought these people to the faith through the gospel and he comes back to it. And somewhere in that time, one of the prominent leaders openly attacks Paul comes out and just calls it, I don't think you're legit, Paul. I don't think your ministry is real and we don't need you anymore. And not everybody believed that, but nobody came to Paul's defense. Everybody just sat there. And Paul sits there and and watches as the very people that he started, the very people that he's been invested in and loving, none of them come to his defense in this moment. I have have two uncles. Um, I, I have a few different uncles in ministry. I have two uncles who worked in churches for a very long time and then almost like that saw some of the people in those churches turn on them. And there are few things, few words that can even be used to describe what it's like to invest your life and your soul and your heart 
into a people that you love dearly and then to watch those very same people turn on you. And, and Paul, um, Paul went through a very dark time in this. He goes back to Ephesus and he ends up writing another letter to him, to, to the people there. But here's what he says, and uh, we'll read these words in 2 Corinthians 2 later. Uh, but Paul writes the third letter, and he says, I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love I have for you. And so he writes Corinthians C, what we call the tearful letter, and not one that we have. He writes it to basically ask this question, why are you turning your back on me? And for those of you um, who aren't yet turning your back on me, why are you not defending me? Have I not, have I not sold myself out for you? Why aren't you dealing with this problem? Why are you letting sin enter into the church the way you are? So he writes that letter and he sends it with Titus. Titus travels down to Corinth with the news and then after two and a half years of awesome things happening in Ephesus, the town turns on Paul. Now the church still loves him. The church is still growing. But a riot starts in the middle of Ephesus. Persecution breaks out and forces Paul to leave. And so Paul goes up to Troas and Titus is supposed to meet him there. But Titus never shows up. And so now Paul begins to be overwhelmed with grief because he doesn't know where his friend Titus is. And he doesn't know what's happened in Corinth. He sent this really difficult, really painful letter, and he has no idea how the people have responded to it. Um, and he doesn't even know how to find Titus. He doesn't, he doesn't even know if Titus has made it here or where he may be, what has happened to him. But at any rate, he decides to travel on into Macedonia. And it's in Macedonia that Titus comes and finally meets up with him. And he meets up with amazing news. He tells them, the people read the letter and they responded. People read the letter and they repented. Most of them, not all of them yet. Most of them began to repent. And Paul is just overcome with joy. You'll see it in the very first paragraph of this letter when we read it next week. Paul is just bursting at the seams with joy at the good news that there are people who are coming back to the truth, back to the light, and back to his side again. Um, so... Uh, so he, he gets this news, he sits down and he starts to pin this letter, 2 Corinthians, and he starts to pin it for a couple different reasons because the war's not over in Corinth yet. There's still trouble there. There's still those who are against him. There's still those who are trying to undermine his ministry and some of the more prominent ones in the church are buying into the teaching of the false teachers. And so Paul writes 2 Corinthians for these reasons. Number one, to defend his ministry to defend it and explain why his suffering fits into the, the genuineness of his ministry. Number two, to call the rebellious to repentance. Number three is kind of long, to tell those who have already repented. He's giving them an opportunity to show the genuineness of it. And, and we'll see a little bit more of that as we go, what we mean by that. He also writes to take some shots at the false teachers. And lastly, he writes to prepare them for his upcoming visit in which he's going to be taking up a collection. Jerusalem at this time is going through a famine and many of the people there are starving, including some of the Christians there, the church. And so Paul is traveling through and he's taking up a collection to buy food and bring back to Jerusalem at this time. And so he wants to prepare the church there saying, I'm coming and I'm going to be taking up a collection. 
I want to find you in the right frame of mind when I get there. This is why Paul writes. Now, in just a minute, we're going to talk about what Paul writes. But we'll give you a couple-minute break before we jump into that. Yeah, man. Um, so is the reason they don't have Corinthians A and C because um, when they were put together the Bible, they didn't have it at the time? Or was it because of the yes. fact of... Okay, so it's because they didn't have it. Yes, yes. Okay, I didn't know. Maybe they just said, like, it doesn't really seem like it fits. So yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it was never like, we have it and it's not... It's not scriptural or it's not true or whatever. It was like... It doesn't really, you know, it just applies to certain Yes, yes. Yeah, it was, it was specifically they just never found, they never had the documents. Which, which leads us to believe some, some degree that there probably wasn't tons of like, super valuable information because the church is sitting there to keep those Normally, when we teach through, through a, a, a section, we'll spend the first half just walking through the text, um, doing some, some background on, on what's being taught. We'll walk through what some of these words mean and, and, and the literary context, historical context, all that. And then we'll take a little break, and then we'll have someone come up the second half and just give, uh, really help see some of the theological implications to the text, or maybe some application that what this text is saying to us here and now. So that's normally how we do it tonight, because it's an introduction. We're we're doing a little different, but because of that, I want to take this opportunity to talk about this. So you, you should have got one of these. Um, this is our method of interpretation. So the fancy word is hermeneutics. It's not as fancy as over-realized eschatology, but whatever. It's the best I can do. Um, hermeneutics it literally just means, it it's comes from a word that means interpret. So it's, it's this, the process of interpretation or method of interpretation. And so here's really how it works. Whenever we study the Bible, actually when Drew and I and Rachel teach the Bible, we want to teach it in such a way that you could learn how to study the Bible for yourself. Um, I don't know about you, if, if you've ever sat down to read a Bible, in fact I know all of you have, sat down to read a Bible at some point, and at some point reading something, you go, okay, I don't know what this means. I don't know how you're supposed to know what this means. Am I just supposed to let the preacher tell me what it means? And I don't, if you grew up in a church that where you just listened and they told you what it meant, you never really had to work at figuring out what it meant, 
um, we want to make you figure out, work at figuring out what it meant. We want to help walk through that process with you. And so here's how we do it. Um, it's real simple. In this first box, we always start with them. We always start with what's going on then um, whenever it was written. Oops, there's not two. That is an H. Them. Um, what was going on when this was written? Who wrote it? Who were they writing to? That's what Drew just got done doing. He, he was giving us historical background to Corinth, to, to Paul, to the church in the Corinthians, the church there. And so we always start there. We always want to know what the author's intended meaning is so we can figure out where to start. Okay? This book was not written to us. It was written to them. So we need to understand what it meant to them. And then from there, we can move up here. Notice the dotted lines. You can move up here to find out what it meant to everyone. And, and what, what, were, what are some principles that can be extracted from this text that, set, that helps us see how this can be applied to everyone at all times? Okay? So you move up there first, and then... And then you can come down here to us and figure out what does this mean to us living in 2017, right? This, Paul wrote this in what, 54, 55 AD? That's 2,000 years almost of history. Think about what life in the United States was like 200 years ago, okay? And how crazy different that was then. Think 2,000 years ago on a different continent in a different in Eastern world we're talking it's different language. We're talking all kinds of difference. And so there's a, there's a huge gap that we need to understand before we can, before we can get here. And that's the, the way we do it. Is we start here. We move up. We figure out what's going on. How, does, how, how could this apply to everyone? And then before we can figure out how it applies to us. And that's what this little chart explains. Love for you to keep that with you. Every time you read the Bible, every time you study the Bible, you need to start thinking in these terms. Instead of just, a lot of, notice the solid line here. A lot of people think you, you just, you read the Bible and then you just figure out what it meant to us. But that's not how it works. You don't just pick up the Bible and go, oh, what does God want to say to me? That's not, that's not how this works. There's a process. There's different types of genres. There's different, it's written to different audiences. We need to, so... The goal, our goal is not to somehow complicate the Bible for you, but hopefully um, set you up to succeed in understanding the Bible. And, and um, if, this, if this process is somewhat new, it may seem like it's complicated, but honestly it will help you start to understand why things are written in the way they're written. So that's a little bit of that process. You'll see that worked out in the coming weeks. So I want to start into talking about 2 Corinthians, but first I want to tell you about my kids. So I have three kids. We'll get there. I have three kids. Kylie, who's 15, um, she, she just started, she's 15 and a half because she just started driving. She has a permit. So I have a driver in my house other than my wife. It's kind of crazy. So she's now learning how to drive. She's our oldest. She's a very typical oldest child, firstborn. She's very responsible. She's very hesitant. She, it took us a long time to talk her into this idea of maybe driving. She finally, she finally, you know, loosened up to it. And then for the longest time, she's like, no, 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 I'm okay. I'm like, no, you're going to drive. It's just, just down the street. You're going to do this. And now she's getting to the point. She's getting more confident. So 
she's, she's hesitant, but she's good. And she's easy. Um, she's by far our easiest. Um, she's an internal processor. And when we ask the right questions, we can find out what's going on. Micah's our second. She's 13. She, is, she wants to drive right now. She, she could drive, she would drive anytime if she could. Um, and she's not a processor. We can't, we, we don't think she processes. <laughs> so she doesn't do it internally because when we ask her, she doesn't know, she doesn't like to talk about things she can't communicate about. So, so we can't ask her directly. We have to kind of come alongside and ask her, be ninja about it. Um, Trace is our youngest, he's 10 and a half. He's a verbal processor. <laughs> Tells us exactly how he feels whenever he feels it. Um, uh, you could, let me just say, he could, the, the saying, this, this explains my son perfectly. He lets his alligator mouth overrun his hummingbird brain all the time. <laughs> so so he, he says whatever he thinks, whenever he thinks it, before he lets it go through a filter. Um, and that gets him in trouble a lot. So I have th we have three different kids. They're all different. We have to approach them differently. We have to talk to them differently. We can't say the same thing to all of them. It means the same thing. We have to figure out how to do this. And you know, all of our kids are in our house. They're not gone yet. And I can't imagine once they leave the house, the kind of conversation. My wife and I have conversations all the time about how they're doing, their friends, how they're doing at school. You know, you as parents, you worry about your kids. You, 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 you talk about how we can help them. Are, are we preparing them enough? Are they ready for life? All that kind of stuff. And so I can't imagine when they leave the kind of conversations we're going to have because they're so different and, and we care for them. And we're going to have to figure out how to, how to confront them as, as young adults and yet not try to take over their life. And we're going to have to figure out how to speak truth and love and all these things. And I say that because I can only imagine Paul um, having all these churches that he feels like are his kids at some level um, going. In fact, he gives us a clue in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. In 2 Corinthians 11, he's talking about all the ways that he's suffered okay, for the gospel. He's been beaten, he's been, he's been whipped, he's been shipwrecked, all these things. He says, besides all that, verse 28, he says, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. So why do I bring that up? Because 2 Corinthians, you get to see an emotional Paul. Like Drew just described this, he leaves... He hears this, he comes back, he has this painful meeting, he leaves, he hears it's not going well, he sends a letter, he, he, then he finds out they're, they're repentant. I mean, there's, there's just this emotional connection that Paul has with the churches he started all over this region. And you see it in this letter. You see his love as a father with his kids, you see his, his, his heart as a pastor with, with his church, and you see it from the very beginning. Um, that that really helped me when that when I that finally clicked. Like this is Paul is showing how much he loves this this group of people and what he's concerned about, and he figures out he has to navigate with encouraging them, and confronting them, and challenging them, and building them up. He, he's doing all of this at the same time, and I and I picture Paul having them all. You know, at, I saw somewhere where estimated based on houses and different things that there might have been around fifty some people in this church, but just all the different problems and all the different things that are going on, the outside influences and the people rising up, false teachers, and all this stuff that Paul is trying to address in this letter, 
because he cares. So you have this cult, you have this um, backdrop that, that Drew just gave us. A couple things I want to point out: the culture. Um, you have the self-sufficient, um, independence, boasting in wealth and power and success and possessions and status. This drive for upward mobility, to to climb the ladder of success, to get rich, and and to be to be known. So that's the culture that, he, that he's dealing with. And then you have the culture of the church itself and s- some things going on. You have a history of repentance and unrepentance. You have the church adopting cultural philosophies and mindsets. You have um, false teachers and different people promising deliverance from suffering and, and, and kind of teaching against Paul and some of the things that he's, that he's described. And then, then this Paul, you see this tone of Paul um, defending, the ch- defending his ministry. Defending his own um, God-given authority that he believes he has, and so he's def- he's he's writing from a defensive position. Um, all the while, he's trying to show this this nature of what new ministry under the new covenant of Christ is like. And so, with those two things, Paul's Paul's um, his letter is going to go after the culture. He's going to preach that weakness, this is a big one, it's a big theme in, in 2 Corinthians, that weakness is a source of strength and suffering as a vehicle of God's power. Okay? Weakness is a source of strength and suffering as a vehicle of God's power and glory. That we'll see from the very beginning. Next week, the text we're in, we'll talk about suffering at the end in chapter 12, talks about suffering from beginning to end. Um, Paul makes it very clear that weakness and suffering are evidences of God's strength and power. One author said, The ministry of the Spirit is not one of splash and flash, but of meekness and weakness. Meekness and weakness. So, so he, he's going to go after cultural influences. He's also going to go after the church specifically. And this message in 2 Corinthians is going to, like and Drew already said it, strengthen the repentant and win back the unrepentant. To strengthen the repentant and win back the unrepentant. In chapter 13, verse 9, he says, Your restoration is what I pray for. So he is, even though he's tough, he's hard, he speaks truth and he challenges him and tells him, very clearly, in fact, one of the things he's going to do is also warn false teachers, say, listen, don't mistake my weakness or what you perceive to be um, my passiveness when I'm with you as not having any power. Paul's going to make it very clear. Um, Jesus, he says in 13, in fact, I just want to read it because it's really, really good. Um, he says, Seek, uh, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, He is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For He was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in Him, but in dealing with you, we will live with Him by the power of God. And later on He says, um, the Lord has given me this, this, this authority to build up the church and not tear it down. But, but hear me out. If I come and you haven't repented, and if you're still preaching these ways that are leading the church astray, I will come with all of Christ's power to cut you down. And so, Paul speaks with strong words here because 
of what these guys are doing. So that's, 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 those are the messages that are going to be presented. Now, a couple weeks ago, our leaders um, got away for a retreat, and we broke up the text in, in, in the groups into groups of three or four, gave them a couple chapters, had them read through that, those, those two chapters and come up with some questions and some themes that they thought would really um, hit us this year. And so I just want, I'm going to walk down through some of their, their observations and some of their questions and some of the themes that they came up with just to give you, just to give you a little taste of what 2 Corinthians is going to do. Okay? And you can, if you want, open your Bible, start in chapter 1. I'm just going to point out a few verses here and there. And you can kind of look at them. I don't want you to spend too much time there. You might get distracted in, in, in reading. You can read it later. Maybe mark it or something. But So here's some of the themes and some of the questions that kind of came from our time. In 1 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4, um, it deals with comfort when suffering. Comfort during the midst of trials. And so this question of um, why does God allow suffering? Um, came up. Um, why does he allow us to go through pain? How do we, how do I comfort someone who is struggling, who is going through pain? So that's something that we'll get to talk through next week, actually. In, in chapter 2, verse 4, Paul talks about how he confronts people. So should we confront people? How do we confront people? How do we do it um, with grace and with truth? In chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, he talks about forgiving someone. In fact, he says, the, the person who has, um, who has hurt us, the person who's caused pain, he's describing people within the church that have caused pain to him and to others in the church. He says, you need to forgive them. And so we'll talk about what does it mean to forgive? What does it truly mean to forgive somebody? Not just say the words, yeah, I forgive you. But what does it mean? How do we do that? Where is repentance involved? Um, chapter 3, verses 17 through 18, we'll deal with and we'll talk about what actually happens on the inside of a Christian. What's, what's going on in a Christian? Um, and how is it, how is it a, a, a transition from the old life to, to a new, to under this new covenant? In chapter 4, verse 5, a question came up based on this verse, which we'll read it later. Um, who shines brightest in your life? Who, who does your life proclaim the most? What is your life proclaiming? Is another way of asking it. Chapter 4, 7 through 18 um, focuses on the unseen and not the seen. He's gonna Paul's going to challenge us, and we'll read it here in a little bit. He's going to challenge us to not focus on what we see in front of us, but on what is unseen. How do we do that? Why would, why would you focus on what you can't see when you've got to deal with what you see? And that, and that will come up. This is a big text um, there in chapter 4. And then five, chapter 5, 1 through 10, it deals with this idea of pleasing God or pleasing yourself or pleasing others. Who do you aim to please is a question that came up. And then chapter 5, 11 through 21, central theme of Corinthians. Probably the most um, known verses in Corinthians are in these, these verses, 11 through 21. It's huge. It talks about um, the God, has the gospel, has reconciliation, has a ministry that God's given us. There's a lot there. We'll, we'll read a little bit of it later. In chapter 6, verse 1 through 13, um, 
Have you ever heard somebody who has suffered so much for the gospel and for, for ministry, but yet talk about it in such a way that shows their love for it and their joy in it? And so you'll get to hear Paul talk about the ways in which like the very thing that's caused him the most pain is in his life is the very thing that he loves the most. And he's talking about doing ministry, the ministry of the gospel. Chapter 6, verse 14. Let's, let's read it. You've heard this before. Do not be equally, sorry, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Is that just a dating verse? Is that a dating verse? Is there more to that? We'll talk more about that. Uh, in the coming weeks. Seven, chapter 7, 9 through 11 deals with this idea of, so if I do something wrong and I feel bad and I say I'm sorry, is that the same as repentance? What is repentance? Is there such thing as worldly grief and godly grief? And Paul talks about those two things. And so we'll get to talk about what, what is the difference and what does it mean to repent? And what is, what is not repenting? In chapter 8, verse 2. Actually, chapter 8 and chapter 9 um, are going to deal with this idea of generosity. What does it mean for college students to give generously, to be generous when you don't feel like you have much? How do you, how do you grow in generosity? And then in chapter 9, he's going to take it further and say, okay, don't just be generous, but be cheerful about it. So that's, that's like two steps. How do we grow in generosity, but then how do we grow to the point where we're actually cheerful about being generous? Paul's going to challenge us, and he's going to, we're going to see an example of this in that chapter. And I think it's good timing. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, but when, when Drew is describing Paul raising support here to take food and money and and back down to Jerusalem, who's in a drought. Houston's maybe the opposite of a drought, but just as, just as bad. And so we get an opportunity, right? The churches are coming together to raise support, to send resources. And so you will have an opportunity to do that. In fact, Aaron said in two weeks, but next week and the week after. So for the next two weeks, we'd love to challenge you to bring an offering, to bring a gift that we can send, and 100% of whatever you give goes down to Houston, by the way. So, chapters 8 and 9 are going to deal with us and money and giving gener generously and being a generous person and why that is. Um, chapters 10 and 11 are going to talk about how do we deal with false teachings and false ideas. How do you, how do you confront a false idea um, and, and be ready to be ready to battle, I guess, at some level, false ideas that are harmful and hurtful without picking a fight with the people that are saying it. Have you ever, you ever heard bad ideas? They always come out of mouths of people that say them. And so how do you, how do you deal with confrontation? How do you deal with those kinds of things without looking to pick a fight with someone, but yet at the same time attack an idea? Our culture does not like... Our culture, we, we, we get very offended when our ideas are attacked. We take it really personal. And so it's, it's kind of created this really, we have a lot of strong opinions, and if you don't like our opinions, we're really offended that you don't like our opinions. And so it's kind of an interesting situation. So Paul is going to deal with some of that. Um, here's a verse in chapter 10 that maybe you've heard before. 
Uh, in fact, I want to read it. Chapter 10, verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your, diso- when your obedience is complete. What does it mean to take every, cap- every thought captive? So we'll, we'll get to talk through that. In chapter 12, um, there's several things that happen in chapter 12. The very beginning of chapter 12, Paul drops this bomb that he, he, he knows a guy who, who um, what does it say, was caught up to the third heaven. Okay? When, when it, anytime the third heaven is mentioned, that's heaven for us. So you have the earth, you have the heavens, and then you have the third heaven, which is what we consider to be heaven. So Paul's saying, I know somebody that, that had an experience in heaven, that witnessed heaven, he's caught up to heaven. What's he talking about? Who's he talking about? We'll get into that. Um, also, in chapter 12, you have this crescendo of this idea of dealing with suffering and um, weakness. And so Paul will quote Jesus, which, by the way, isn't, in, in, isn't in, in the Gospels anywhere. But he quotes Jesus as saying, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Um, so that idea is, is huge there in chapter 12. You also have this idea of Paul having a thorn in the flesh and having to deal with the fact that God gave him a thorn in the flesh. Would God ever give you, would God ever cause any pain in your life? Would He ever want you to be comf- uncomfortable or have any pain? And so, according to Paul, God gave him this, this thorn in the flesh to keep him humble, to keep him aware of his weakness. Um... So, you have a couple big, big ideas there that I think are, uh, that are, that are important for us to talk about. Um, chapter 13, again, he, he's going to give some warnings to, to those that are false teaching, and he's going to give very sharp words. He wants them to repent. He's saying, it is your restoration that we pray for. Um, he's ultimately aiming for restoration with all of this. So you get to see all of this. So I'm excited to jump into some of these things. But I want to I talk a little bit about our situation, our culture. Um, so a couple quick things, and then we'll be done. Our culture values, in fact, if you want, turn to chapter 4, because we're going to read some of chapter 4. Our culture, uh, we, we value quick success over a lifetime of faithfulness. We, we value quick success over a lifetime. Think of all the people that you know that got famous quick. The Justin Bieber's, Bieber's of the world. Those that YouTube sensations or whatever. Um, like, like, it's easy to get famous here. In fact, some of you are maybe kind of counting on it. Um, and maybe a little too much. Like, ah, I don't need to... That whole working for a long time to... I'll just get rich quick, you know. Um, that's, that seems to be somewhat easy to do. You can create an app that someone can, people can buy for a dollar and you can make millions. Like, that's just crazy to me. But you all know that people that can do that. And so it seems like a possibility. Um, but look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, having the, the ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced dis- disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. 
but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. In other words, what Paul's saying is, we didn't come in here, he said, me and Titus, we didn't come in here preaching lofty words, we didn't come with flashy uh, rhetoric, we, we didn't come with any of these underhanded or cunning ways. We just came preaching the truth. We're, we're just here to present the truth, and we're going to be faithful to do that. Like, like Drew said, Paul wasn't flashy. He wasn't, a, wasn't known as this great communicator. He was, just, he was just faithful to preach the truth. So, that, so I think Corinthians is going to, to deal with that in us. Um, there's also, in our culture, a hyperdrive to make a name for ourselves. And look at verse four, verse five, chapter four, verse five. For we, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. So G- Paul says, we didn't come preaching ourselves; we came preaching Jesus. That's what we're about. And I think Second Corinthians is going to deal with us in that. The other thing that hit me is that we, our culture glorifies the body more so than glorifying Christ through our body. Um, and, and so like, I'll be honest, this hit me because I, 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 I enjoy working out, I enjoy eating right, I want to be healthy. And there is a fine line between being a good steward of the body that God's given you and worshiping health and worshiping the body that God's given you. And so listen to what um, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 12, he's talking about the, the kind of affliction that they faced. He says, We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. That's an interesting statement. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life is in work in you. And he's describing, he's saying, we've been, pun- we've been, we've suffered. Our bodies have taken a beating, but but he said it's better that our bodies take a beating so that you can have life in Jesus. So Paul doesn't care about his body as long as Jesus is being glorified in and through him. Chapter, no, cha- yeah, chapter 5. So that's, that's dealing with cultural things. This, I think, de- dealing with um, issues in our church, the church, if you will. Here's a few. I think um, cultural Christianity loves self-help more than self-denial. So there is a fad within churches to preach self-help more than self-denial. 2 Corinthians 5, 14-17, we'll deal with that. Verse 14 in chapter 5 says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who, might, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. So from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is is passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
Another issue in our church is spiritual relativism over the ministry of reconciling people to God. What I mean by that is, um, I think I hear things like, just whatever the Lord leads you to do, just follow the Lord. You know, just pray about whatever. And, and yet, oftentimes this idea of you and I, those, those of us who have accepted Jesus, the moment you accept Jesus the moment you're, is the moment you've been given a ministry to reconcile people to God. It's not something you have to pray about. It's not something you have to seek the Lord about. It's something that's been made very clear. And, and, and a lot of us aren't doing it. We're not, as, as the text says, um, ambassadors for Christ, ministers of reconciliation. So here's what it says in 5, 18-20. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting, counting their trespasses against them and entrusting, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. And we implore you on, Christ, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So I think God's going to deal with that in us and help us see the ministry that He's given us. Lastly, um, I think some, one issue in the church is there is, and I see it in, I see it, well, I see it all over Facebook, let's just put it that, social media. There's a desire for spiritual experiences that can be captured on Instagram more than long obedience in the same direction. So, Jesus didn't die so that you and I could have some great spiritual experiences. He died so that you and I could be made right with God and, be, and to grow in Christ-likeness and to become the righteousness of God here on earth, to represent Him in that way. Verse 21, 521. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And so Jesus didn't come so that we can have great worship experiences, have great spiritual experiences. It's not based really on experience. That's one of the things that Paul's dealing with at this church is um, that you shouldn't be suffering, Paul. If, it, if this really was right, if your ministry really was good, you wouldn't be suffering. You'd, you'd be having a great life. And, and um, so Paul's going to deal with that in us and help us see Listen, it's fine to take a picture of your Bible and your cup of coffee in the morning and tell everybody in the world that you're reading the Bible. That's great. I hope more than anything like that like some moments with the Lord are recalibrating your heart and your mind so that you recognize who God is and what He's done and who you are and, and how, how you're called to live so that you can live a life of faithful obedience in the same direction. And that, that is what glorifies God more so than some great experience that we have. So, a lot in 2 Corinthians that's coming our way. I can't wait to walk through it with you. Let me pray, and then we'll be done. God, thank You for Your Word. It is, um, it is never too late and always on time. And so, God, I pray that we would receive 
your truth, that we would turn to you, that we would um, submit to your word and let it change and transform us. And so we give this year to you and this study to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Don't forget, we're going to have a meeting in about five minutes right over here for table groups. Love to have you.